You are listening to Veterinary Mental Health, Turning the Stethoscope Around, Episode 23, presented by Thoughtful Life Counseling. Welcome to the podcast. I am Taylor Miller, a veterinarian and a licensed professional counseling intern. Mental health and work-life balance are critical issues for veterinary professionals. While not intended as a substitute for individual counseling, this podcast seeks to address many of the mental health concerns common to members of our profession. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we will be discussing the imposter syndrome, which is something I've been excited to address for quite some time, and here we are. The other name that it goes by is the imposter phenomenon, which is less commonly used, but it's what I will choose to call it for reasons I will go into a little bit later. So the imposter phenomenon is the subject of a relatively new field, Half of the existing scholarly material has been published in the past six years, so keep that in mind. This is a very new topic, a very new subject. Never mind the experience of the imposter phenomenon has been around for considerably longer. So what is it precisely that we are talking about? The imposter phenomenon describes high-achieving individuals who, despite their objective successes, fail to internalize their accomplishments and have persistent self-doubt and fear of being exposed as a fraud or an imposter. I'm going to say that one more time because it's important. The imposter phenomenon describes high-achieving individuals who, despite their objective successes, fail to internalize their accomplishments and have persistent self-doubt and fear of being exposed as a fraud or imposter. So how does this show up in an individual's life? People who are affected by the imposter phenomenon often assume that their peers and colleagues are more accomplished, more talented, more intelligent, and more confident than they are. In order to maintain what these individuals feel is their undeserved place among their colleagues and peers, they expend significant amounts of energy in order to appear to be as accomplished, talented, intelligent, confident as they think they need to be to fit in. And the tragic thing is that often these individuals are accomplished. They are intelligent and talented. They have achieved measurable success. They just aren't able to see it or they aren't able to internalize it. One would imagine that their repeated successes in their field or area of study would give them feedback that they are worthy of labels such as intelligent, talented, successful. However, individuals who experience the imposter phenomenon attribute their success to luck, to being able to game the system with charm or with tricks as they think of them. They feel like they just knew the right people, or they feel that a gatekeeper somehow missed screening them out. And when failures do happen, these are taken deeply to heart and viewed as evidence that an individual is inadequate. And so what are the consequences of this imposter phenomenon? What happens when a person has this persistent view of themselves that they are unworthy or that they're hiding in plain sight? There have been a number of studies that agree that the imposter phenomenon is often present in conjunction with depression and anxiety. Not that depression and anxiety cause the imposter phenomenon, but a person who experiences the imposter phenomenon is more likely to be depressed and anxious. They also see that people who experience the imposter phenomenon tend to have more perfectionistic traits and lower self-esteem. 
One point that I thought was interesting is that in student populations, the imposter phenomenon was associated with greater test anxiety, which seems natural. Expectations of low performance, again, that's consistent. But these individuals were significantly less likely to cheat on exams or to plagiarize their work. So one shouldn't expect those with the imposter syndrome to be using underhanded methods of making up for what they perceive as their inadequacies. They stick it out with effort and hard work. In the professional realm, the imposter phenomenon is associated with impaired job performance, reduced engagement in career planning, reduced motivation to occupy leadership roles, a significant reduction in job satisfaction, difficulty maintaining a good work-life balance, and perhaps most worrisome, the imposter phenomenon has been identified as a potentially important contributor to burnout. In the day-to-day movement through a professional field, an individual experiencing the imposter phenomenon may be less interested in taking on challenges because there is that constant fear of failure and exposure. Unfortunately, there can also be an equal fear of success in many respects, because success is the result of chance or happenstance, which means that there's a fear that you wouldn't be able to replicate that success now that the people around you have an expectation that you can. And this puts someone affected by imposter phenomenon in an impossible situation. Success is scary. Failure is horrifying, and challenges can be anxiety-provoking. So with this perspective in mind, it becomes easy to see why someone experiencing the imposter phenomenon might freeze in place career-wise and prefer the status quo, despite significant problems, to navigating a new environment in which they might be more easily exposed as an imposter. From the imposter's perspective, they figure out how to camouflage themselves in a certain environment, and a new environment requires that they figure out a new way to camouflage and a new way to exist and maintain their deception as they see it. So I was able to read a couple of studies that were specifically focused on uh, medical students and physicians, obviously nothing on veterinarians, but I like to think that there are many corollaries in the human medicine and animal medicine worlds, at least to the degree that we can extrapolate some of the wellness research that is done in their field. In this study of medical students and physicians, the imposter phenomenon was associated with self-doubt, anxiety, burnout, and depression. Related studies have shown that this collage of symptoms in turn are associated with compassion fatigue, increased substance use, and an increase in medical errors. And I feel these topics, the compassion fatigue, substance use, medical errors, these topics are addressed with relative frequency and have certainly received more public attention. But it behooves us to remember that they do not develop in a vacuum, and that's why I feel attention to some of these precursors are so critically important because they might be the points at which we can make a difference and in which we can make an ultimate change to these more commonly discussed situations, compassion fatigue, etc. So now we have a description of the imposter phenomenon and the consequences of the imposter phenomenon. So how does it develop? Because that's key, right? 
If we're going to figure out ways to mitigate the issue, we have to know how it comes about. And there are several theories, and this is where information gets a little sparse and there's less agreement. So we are entering the realm of conjecture, although I do find that some of these explanations resonate with me. So I'd be interested to hear if they resonate with you as well. One theory postulates that individuals with the imposter phenomenon tend to have a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And in a fixed mindset, human attributes are described as constant, fixed, unchangeable. So either you are smart or you aren't smart. And people with the imposter phenomenon often feel as though they have been labeled as smart, but don't actually embody that. And since there's no way to change it, you just have to pretend and find ways to project intelligence, even though it's not really there. A person with a growth mindset, on the other hand, sees human attributes as malleable, which even by its description, is obviously a healthier way to approach oneself. In the realm of a fixed mindset, a failure proves the non-existence of that label you're hoping to achieve. So failure proves that your ability is inadequate. Failure proves that you're not smart. In a growth mindset system, fail really is that first attempt in learning. I love that acronym, FAIL, first attempt in learning. Very, very small detour here. In a related passage in a parenting book that I was perusing, there was a recommendation by the author to phrase things to children in a way that supports a growth mindset. So a child brings you a well-done piece of homework or a beautiful drawing or something that shows that they have achieved an outcome. The language you use should praise or reward the effort or work or diligence or training that went into that project rather than the result. So saying, I am so impressed by how much work you put into this project. It really turned out well. Versus you are so smart or you are so talented. Look how well you can draw because those reward the result and make the love and attention you are giving the child contingent upon a repeated good result rather than making the love and attention you're giving the child contingent on repeated effort. Because even if the effort fails, you can still reward the effort. So I thought that was fascinating. And particularly in light of the information I'm learning about the imposter phenomenon, something that I'm going to try to be more mindful about, because it's so easy to tell somebody you're talented, you're beautiful, you're smart, because these feel like compliments to us. These feel like nice things to say. Moving on. One of the other theories put forward, or at least an area of exploration, is that self-compassion is lacking in individuals who are affected by the imposter phenomenon. So several studies found that higher levels of the imposter phenomenon are associated with lower levels of self-compassion. And the reason that I have continued to say phenomenon, never mind, it's really tricky in a podcast to say that correctly this many times. I do want kudos for that. A syndrome implies that the problem is located within the individual. It is something in the individual that is broken and needs to be fixed. A phenomenon helps open up the possibility that what an individual is experiencing is the result of what is happening around them. And this is what I found very compelling about my investigation of the imposter phenomenon 
is how many cultural factors feed into the development of these feelings in an individual. So yes, it is an individual problem in the sense that it is an individual who is experiencing it, but the source of the problem may be external and we really need to think about that and as a profession, we need to address it. Several studies examined the effect of both professional culture, organizational culture. Again, there were quite a few studies that looked at university systems. And there's conjecture that individuals who are either underrepresented or undercompensated compared to your typical white male peer have reinforced for them on that daily basis. Maybe it's a subconscious basis, but it's constantly reinforced that they aren't suited or they aren't supposed to be there. They don't fit. And if that is the message that you are receiving over and over, you might believe it. You might start to believe that you don't fit or that you don't belong or that you shouldn't be there. And those are the seeds of the imposter phenomenon, right? Feeling unworthy and feeling like you're hiding in plain sight. This situation might affect women more if they are in a male-dominated field. So that's where some of the suspicion that females might be more susceptible to the imposter phenomenon comes from. The other area to consider are marginalized groups. In that medical study that I was reading, they were pointing out that those who self-identified as white or Asian made up the bulk of the individuals studied and that any other ethnicity reported higher levels of the imposter phenomenon as compared to the white or Asian counterparts. So in at least one study of medical students and professionals, membership in a marginalized group was the dynamic that was most prominent when one looked at contributing environmental factors. And then the other element, and this is one that we have begun to talk about in veterinary medicine, is that the educational process is one of very low psychological safety. It's one that relies on silence, feelings of inadequacy, on a rigid hierarchy that you do not disrupt. And the quote in the medical study that I found most compelling was, multiple studies have shown that while medical students begin their training with similar rates of depression as their non-medical counterparts, their mental health declines as their education progresses. And they attribute this to shame-based learning and what in human medicine is called pimping and what we know as being interrogated in rounds. So that situation where you're having your knowledge tested in public in a rapid-fire, non-secure way. Both of these items were listed as detrimental to mental health. And I think most of us could agree that that's obvious. But this might be one of the ways in which it manifests this imposter phenomenon. And similarly, individual interpersonal relationships with self-relevant others, so people whose opinion of us we rely on, if we are treated by them or we receive comments from them that communicate a sense of value, worth, and fit, and if those evaluations of value, worth, and fit aren't positive, that can drastically influence our self-evaluation of value, worth, and fit. So thinking about all of those things and recognizing that there is a systemic origin to some of these imposter phenomenon feelings in addition to perhaps some individual tendencies. 
Which brings us to the question of how do we address the imposter phenomenon? And one of the key things is to recognize that you are not alone. It is very isolating to feel as though you're hiding in plain sight. And all of your energy goes into maintaining that hidden persona, right? You maintain your facade of competence or of intelligence or for whatever it is that you think that you're not. You try to maintain that facade. But if you and everyone around you are all trying to maintain a facade, nobody's helping each other and you're all in the same boat. Maybe it's difficult to approach somebody and start up that discussion. But I promise you, you are not the only one who feels like everyone around you is smarter than you. And maybe someone next to you imagines that you are the smart one, so you are not alone. The next step in managing imposter feelings is to extend to yourself the gift of self-compassion. I did discuss self-compassion somewhat in the mindfulness episode, which was my eighth episode, I believe. Self-compassion enhances emotional resilience, well-being, and even academic achievement, and it reduces fear of failure, denial of competence, and self-doubt, which are obviously central components of the imposter phenomenon. So looking at self-compassion as the balm to these feelings that arise with the imposter phenomenon is a great way to start. And of course, training self-compassion can be very difficult, but Breaking it down, we can look at three components. Even if you can just pick one of these components to work on, it's a start. Self-kindness, turning kindness and acceptance and understanding inwards in addition to outwards. A lot of people can be very good about being kind to other people, and they just have difficulty being kind to themselves. And self-talk is absolutely a topic that we will be discussing in great detail later hopefully sprinkled throughout all of these, but self-kindness is so important. One of the tricks that I'm sure everyone has heard is speak to yourself as you would speak to a loved friend and see what kind of change that makes in your dialogue with yourself. Monologue with yourself, if it's just you. Anyway, common humanity is the next component of self-compassion. Trying to change that experience of being isolated to being part of the general royal of humanity, which is basically flawed, and that's okay. That's the normal human condition. So trying to recognize and deeply feel that your experience is not isolating, it's not the exception, that it's probably the norm. And then finally, working on mindfulness specifically, that non-judgmental bystander perspective, that allows for a more balanced view of reality, and hopefully the ability to accept some of the evidence that is present, that maybe you're not unintelligent, that maybe you do have some success, that maybe you can start working to internalize some of these things that you have achieved. There's some evidence that coaching, especially as it relates to self-efficacy and an internal locus of control, cultivating that growth mindset, can be useful Coaching certainly requires a safe space and trusted others. So depending on your work culture, you may or may not make as much progress as you would like with coaching alone. But perhaps the biggest takeaway of today, the thing that I want to most passionately describe is how as individuals, we can start making a difference in the greater veterinary culture, ways that we can stop this cycle of silence, stop this 
need to appear superhuman and start dialogues with our colleagues, with local leadership in how to normalize discussions around shame, self-doubt, fears of personal inadequacy, making errors, being able to talk about errors without feeling as though the entire world is judging you. Certainly enough people are on the internet, the trolls, they're happy to judge, but we should not be doing that to each other. And we should normalize the fact that errors do occur. I tried to spay a neutered cat the other day. It was a long-haired cat, but uh, yeah, needless to say, the spay was unsuccessful, but these things happen and we need to be able to talk about them and do so in a way that allows for growth and learning and safety rather than feeling like any discussion of errors is an admission of inadequacy or failure. So I ask you all to be mindfully aware of the cultural norms that reinforce this idea that we must be superhuman. We may not be able to alter our clients, but we can each absolutely work to improve the psychological safety of our clinics, hospitals, classrooms, and organizations. Particularly if you are in a position of authority, I'd love for you to be mindful of how you move through that space, your language, your actions, how you may or may not be contributing even inadvertently to a culture that exacerbates feelings of inadequacy. And it may be difficult to believe you have enough influence to make an impact, but as we know, little changes can add up. So thank you so much for listening today. The pursuit of mental well-being can be daunting, particularly when acknowledging the great amount of work to be done in our profession to normalize even the pursuit of mental health and work-life balance. But that is why we are all here together, and I will keep talking as long as anyone's listening. Take good care of yourself this week, and I look forward to talking next week. This has been a mental health moment brought to you by Thoughtful Life Counseling. If you found today's episode helpful, please subscribe to the podcast and consider leaving me a review. You can access any additional resources mentioned in today's episode by visiting my website at thoughtfullifecounseling.com. To have wellness resources delivered by email, please sign up to receive my twice-monthly newsletter. If you have topic requests, questions, or comments, please contact me through my website or any one of my social media platforms. Take care of yourself and tune in next week for a discussion about boundaries 